You have a scripture sheet um, there. It's got a title at the top of it, Expressive Individualism and the Politics of Self. Somebody's going to say, what in the world is Pastor Phil going to talk about this morning? Uh, We're going to get into it. I want to uh, introduce a book to you. I read this book, read many others, but this book kind of supplied us with the theme for this whole month. Uh, The name of this book is The Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. And we borrowed that, uh, The Strange New World, as the title for our whole series. We talked about other subjects and what are in this book right here, but today I'm kind of focusing in on it. So the author is Carl Truman, and uh, it is a very good book. Matter of fact, I picked it up, read through it, just just read straight through it. When I got done with it, I read through it again. And then I said, this gives me a lot of information. We need to, we need to talk about this at church and, uh, and look at God's Word. You can be found at Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble, and many other places you can find that. I thought about bringing them in, letting you buy them from us, but hey, you're, you, you, you guys do this all the time. So see if you can find that book. If you would like to read it, it gives you a lot more information and gives you a lot of background on what uh, the subject matter is today. So uh, how did we get here to this place where we are in the United States of America, indeed in the whole world? How did a person become a self? How did a self become sexualized? And then how did sex become politicized? How did that happen? How did we get to the place where major points and issues on political platforms have to do with sexuality? We live in a strange world. The thoughts about sex and sexualization and sexual identity have moved from the back pages of subcultural tabloids to the front pages of the legislative to-do list in Congress. How is that? Why is that? Where did it come from? I'm already going a little bit too fast. We have had three weeks, fabulous weeks of excellent teaching on this strange new world and the issues that we're facing. It's the one time a year we go off of preaching through books of the Bible. We still preach the Bible, but we do it according to some topics and we've been doing it. Pastor Jonathan did an incredible job looking at the uncertainties of life like inflation, food shortages, government overreach and the like. He pointed us to John 14, 1, and he said that we should trust in Jesus. How many of you believe Jesus is trustworthy today? Say amen. Amen. He really is. We had a guest, Greg Baker came and took us to Romans 13 and other passages and talked about how to navigate politics uh, and to maintain our testimony. Uh, We ought to have an opinion. We ought to vote. We ought to be political, but it should not ever blur the big issue of the gospel. It is more important that we maintain our testimony. And Pastor Andrew did a splendid job last week helping us understand how to deal with real guilt and false guilt and assigned guilt and inherited guilt. Uh, I'll just tell him, I don't know if he's in here this morning, he got high marks all the way from Nevada. Jan Michelson immediately sent me a text and said, I don't know who that was, but hard subject, good job. Well, you get Michelson to say anything, you've said you've done something. So excellent job, Andrew. Now I want to follow up today uh, with a look at some more aspects of this strange new world. And uh, I want to just give just a little uh, interjection and caveat to this whole conversation that we've been having for the last month. And that is to say that we as believers are not called to isolate or to be afraid of the world in which we live. Do you understand that? We're not, we're not called to isolate. Rather, we're called to infiltrate and penetrate this society with the good news of the gospel. You know, uh, you know how to handle darkness, don't you? You know how to handle darkness? Turn on the 
light. And who is it that has the light of truth? Who has that? Believers. We have the light of truth. It's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We're to do everything without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless, harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Listen to this. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Boy, if there needs to be, if we need to turn on the light a little brighter, it's right now more than any time in my lifetime. It's a dark world. And there's a lot of bad things happening, but we need to brighten the light. Now, we read Matthew 22, 34 to 40. I want to read quickly an additional passage that goes along with what I'm saying. You don't need to stand. Let me just read it to you. You can reference it. It's Mark chapter 8 and verse number 34 through 37. And here's what that says. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul. Denying yourself. The Bible is very, very clear about this passage and it's very, about this subject, and we're going to talk about it. My task today is to give us a snapshot of something I'm calling the unencumbered self. We are in the age today of the triumph of the therapeutic. You say, well, what do I mean by that? Well, we've, object, we've rejected the objective truth of divine revelation, the word of God, and thus saith the Lord, and uh, where, where it's preached and we receive it at the foot of the cross. And as a society, we have accepted the counsel of the therapist on the therapeutic couch. Instead of receiving life as it is given, conforming oneself to objective truth, like being born a male or a female, and living according to norms and expectations of civilization, we are now being told to look inside and be true to our inner self. Trust your feelings, Luke Skywalker said all those years ago. We didn't know what was being put in our minds, did we? Trust your feelings, not the facts. Today we are taking that advice, and here's how it plays out. We're told be authentic, be honest. If your birth certificate says male, but you're not sure, then ignore the obvious, the obvious and live authentically. It was once simply self-evident that little boys grew up to be men and little girls grew up to be women who then marry and bear children, assume the responsibilities of adult, including parenthood. Well, that obvious simplicity and obviousness has been replaced with a search to discover some inner truth about gender identity and sexual orientation based on emotions and will rather than nature and reason. Historically, I mean from the beginning of time, our bodily sex determined our sexual orientation and our gender identity. It was given by God. We were to proceed in light of the facts regardless of one's fallen desires on the inside. Today, we're taught something different. We're seemingly obligated to believe that our sexuality is our deepest and most important truth about us and that politics should promote the truth. 
So inevitably, sex is politicized. How many of you can remember 30 years ago? Raise your hand. Do you ever remember sex being on the ballot? Historically, culture and government used to cultivate virtues that made family and religion flourish. Now it seems that the law is being used to suppress the family and the church because they stand in the way of sexual authenticity. Governments now see their job as this, creating a world of safety free of criticism for people to follow their sexual desires in any way their inner self tells them is right for them. Redefining marriage, folks, was never about equality. It was never about joint tax returns. It was never about hospital visitation. It was about forcing churches to change their doctrine. It was about making bakers bake cakes celebrating same-sex relationships It was what Henry Morris said in 1960. It was about attacking and rejecting God. It's God thereafter. It's the ultimate desire for a person to be their own God. God, you made me a man. I've decided otherwise. The result has been the theft of the rainbow, the redefining of words, the coining of new words and a dizzying number of acronyms. Man, I, boy, if you don't have a little book with all the acronyms written down in what, what all they mean, you're lost in this society. It's impossible to know them all. Uh, it, it's amazing. And if you challenge the legitimate, legitimacy of any of these letter combinations, you're going to be attacked from all sides. I said it was dizzying. The latest one I've seen is this one. Now listen up. LGBTQQIP2SAA. Now, I'm not making this up. Listen. LGBTQQIP2SAA stands, it's an acronym, and it stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, pansexual, two-split, androgynous, and asexual. With a plus on the end of it because they're not sure they've got them all yet. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm, I'm trying to read you what I've, what, I, what I've seen and read and what is being promoted. In the state of California, there's a list of 17 different possibilities on some government forms. I said, this is a strange new world. All of this has to do with the rise of self and something that this book, I'd never read it before, but I've come to find out I'm late to the party. I've been, I'm just late arriving. Something called expressive individualism. You're an individual. And however your individualism is and however it reveals itself, you have a right to express fully, wholly, and on the outside. Expressive, exclusive, and expressive individualism. Now, Pastor Phil, somebody's going to say we are individuals and we are self-aware. Indeed, that is true. But we have moved to a place where if anyone is totally free to express themselves fully, regardless of what happens to other individuals, we become ungovernable and a and, and civil society disintegrates and disappears because you are a law unto yourself. I can't help but think this is what was going on before the flood when every thought of man's heart was only continually e- evil before the Lord. I can't help but this is, think this is what was going on in Israel in the book of Judges in chapter 21 and verse 25 when it says, everyone did that which was right where? in their own eyes. What is self? 
What is self? Now, I'm going to try to coincide with what's up on the screen there, but they're going to keep up with me. I'm not going to be going and looking to them. What is self? Here it is. Today, self is the deepest notion of the real me. It shapes my view of life and what fulfillment and happiness looks like. I'm not to be educated to function in the culture. I'm not to be obligated to meet the expectations of others. I'm not to exercise restraint in favor of the people around me. I am to celebrate my uniqueness and do what is best for me and brings me the greatest pleasure. I'm a hedonist. What is this expressive individualism? The first slide you'll see up there. Expressive individualism, according to Robert Bella. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. The next one makes it even clearer. Uh, This first statement in parentheses, the culture of authenticity is one where, well, that's, he's talking about expanding on expressive individualism. It's the culture of authenticity is one where each one of us has his or her own way of realizing humanity. Stop. Isn't it interesting that even in giving this statement, they have to say his or her. Do you know why? Because there's no other. Each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside, outside restrictions, by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. No authority in religion or the church. No authority in government or politics. This is Charles Taylor. He wrote a book called uh, A Secular Age. The other man, Robert Bella, wrote a book, Habits of the Heart, Individualism and Commitment in, in, in America Life. He didn't say American life. I don't know why he says America life. Well, he's from Berkeley. So let me go on and, and just read this. So to summarize this, to summarize this, The modern self is one where authenticity, well, everybody wants to be authentic. Don't you want to be authentic, have integrity, tell the truth? Well, to be authentic is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. Whatever I feel and whatever pleases me and whatever my inclinations are, that's the real me. And I've got to be able to express that, live that And everyone around me has to accept that, affirm that, and the government has to protect that. You are inauthentic if you don't live out what you feel and desire on the inside. I have to wonder why Jeremy Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, and Ted Bundy were condemned so severely. Because the heart is wicked, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And if we're just going to look in our heart and do whatever our little pea-picking heart wants us to do, then we get Jeremy Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, and Ted Bundy. And if you're too young to know who those are, do a little study and find out. Do you see how this is neither reasonable nor logical? Most issues, folks, are clarified on the extremes, aren't they? 
If a person's free to think and do anything they want to according to what's in their heart, then pedophilia just might be a good idea. You understand? This didn't rise overnight. The men mentioned uh, mentioned in this study are a long line of thinkers whose philosophies have been framing social concepts for years. I could mention a guy named Rene Descartes and John Jack Rousseau. He said, man is born free, but everywhere he's in chains. What he means is societal restrictions and norms of behavior have him in chains. W.F. Hegel, who was who influenced Karl Marx is in this line of thinking. There's a real famous guy that everybody that studies philosophy at any, any university in America hears about him all the time. It's Friedrich Nietzsche. He is revered and studied in universities all over the world. He hated religion. He saw it as handcuffs to the authentic expression of self. He is dead but still ruling the philosophy classes of most college campuses. One of his most famous students and followers was a man in England called Oscar Wilde. He was the personification of this philosophy. Here's what he thought. If you can imagine it in your inner self, then you should live it in daily life. Break with the herd. Be a self-creator. Live in sexual adventurism. Good and evil are only a matter of personal taste. Morals and ethics are societal constructs made by the powerful. Ignore them. So we arrive to 2022. We arrive to the time that we're living in right now when psychology has been sexualized and sex has been politicized. Sin is celebrated. Christianity is denigrated. Self is king and self rules. So we come to the word of God. What are we supposed to do? We're believers. How many of you are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Say amen. Amen. How many of you really do want to walk in a way in accordance with what God wants you to do in life? Just raise your hand and say amen. All right, then let me just share with you the word of God. We are supposed to do this. We're supposed to think biblically, live joyfully, and witness faithfully. If you want to, if you want to know what you're supposed to do, think biblically. <laughs> Boy, you better get in your Bible, folks. You better get in the word of God. You better read it slowly, not see how fast you can get it done or to check the box off of your reading chart, but read it slow enough and ask some questions and let the Holy Spirit work in your heart and teach you the word of God. Let, God, let God's word dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Let God's word do its work, plead with the Holy Spirit. Oh, this is Christianity 101. You never get beyond it. There is no 102, 3, 4, 5. No, no, no. This is Christianity 101. Just get in the word of God and get on your knees before him. Oh, it's so important. So think biblically, live joyfully. You say, well, it's just so the world's so crazy. And listen, if there's anybody on the planet that has a reason to have a smile on their face, pep in their step and joy in their heart, it's people who know our destiny, know our savior and have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. It is us. It's a dark world, is it not? (laughs) But I got the light of life living in my heart. I'm a believer in Jesus. He died for me. I want to live for him. Oh, it's so important. I'm so glad the Bible still says forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. You know, one of my greatest joys in this whole project of of pulling up the carpet and painting and getting this auditorium, pulling out all the pews and ripping up everything up here was to walk around this room, read all the Bible verses that you guys wrote in this room whenever we were getting ready to lay the carpet the first time. It, all over, I mean, the word of God is just written everywhere. I, everywhere. There's hardly a place that anywhere in this room where you could be sitting, you're not sitting on the word of God. <laughs> Interesting. Right here under this pulpit, I've told you before, it's written. 
blackened in forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. God's word is not up for vote. It's not up for change. It's not up for our opinion. It is up forever. And we're supposed to live it and love it, learn it. It's the word of God. Let me give you some thoughts very quickly this morning. We are not called to stomp and rage and carry placards and gather at the state capitol. We are called to be the church. Be the church. This is who we are. First thing I want to give you is the Bible predicted this present self-exaltation. The Bible predicted it. This isn't something new. The Bible said it was coming. Uh, Self-love is historic. Write these down quickly. This is not something that surprised us at all. If uh, looking out for number one, just as old as time, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, Eve, she was thinking her own things, had her own plans, listened to the Satan, Eve's encounter with the snake, Cain's murder of Abel, Nimrod's desire to make a name for himself, Balaam's lust for money, and all the way up to James and John. You said, now be careful, they were apostles. Yeah, but what did they say? What was the first thing they wanted? Oh, can we just have a throne, one on each side of you so that we can reign with you in your kingdom? I'm going to preach on that one of these Sundays on the subject of prayer. Do you know what our attitude in prayer is? Our attitude in prayer. Yeah, I know you're going to the cross. I know you're going to die for my sins. I know you're going to bleed. I know you're going to give it up. But hey, here's what I really want. Do this and that for me. And the question was, this said, Master, this is, in, this is in the book of Mark chapter 13. It says, Master, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. That's right after he said, I'm going to the cross to die. Master, we want you to do for us whatever. We, that's, that's James. And, if James and John said that, boy, do I need to be careful. People have always wanted what they wanted, and they want the best and most for themselves. So self-love is historic. Self-love is prophetic. This present selfishness and self-promotion is a sign of the end. Let me read this quickly, 2 Timothy 3.1. I don't know if I gave you the reference or not. Know this, that in the last days, perilous or dangerous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, or proud again. Lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. Lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure. Let me say it again. Lovers of themselves, lovers of pre- Let me say it again. Lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure. It's infecting the church too. If you don't believe that so, then compare what you have given for the propagation of the gospel over the last 10 years to what you have given to spoil yourself. Fun yourself. Entertain yourself. Lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Mm. Self-love is historic. Self-love is prophetic. I got another one. Self-love is pathetic. It's pathetic. There's a guy named Paul Vitz, and he said this in his book, Psychology as Religion, The Cult of (laughs) Self-Worship. Think about that. The psychology uh, as religion, the cult of self-worship. Now, I don't know whether he was, he was t- teaching against it or teaching for it. I just read his quote, and here's what it says. Psychology has become a religion, in particular a form of secular humanism based on the worship of self. 
That's in his book, Psychology as Religion, page 62. And uh, here's one of the things he says are common about people that are worshiping at the altar of self. He said this, this is selfist, not selfish, but selfist jargon. I love me. I'm not conceited. I'm just a good friend to myself. I'm just a good friend to myself. And I like to do whatever makes me feel good. Let me go on. Self-love is not part of the great commandment. Self-love is not part of the great commandment. Over there in that passage that we read just a moment ago, uh, today, even in churches, I hear it all the time in preachers that says, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or, uh, with strength. And he says, this is the first and great, but the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> so this is really interesting. Moses, it is being taught by some evangelicals today. They've jumped on the bandwagon with these people. And they say Moses in the great commandment gave three commands. Love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. That is not what the great commandment says. No, it is a given that we really love and protect ourselves. And we're supposed to love others as we love our, because we love ourselves in the same, the, how about the golden rule, which is based on this principle? What is the golden rule? We need to do unto others as we would have others do unto us. Why do we want? Well, because we want them to do, we want people to treat us well, don't we? We want people to respect us, love us and, and have patience. With, that's the way we, but do we turn it around? In other words, self-love is a given. We're supposed to love God as we love ourselves. We're supposed to love others as we love our, because we love ourselves in the same way. It doesn't, the Bible does not teach love yourself so that you can love others. That's not what it teaches. It teaches because you love yourself so much. And as you love yourself, think about others. This is what the Bible teaches. Think biblically. Number two, Jesus called us to deny ourselves. Matthew 8, 34. Excuse me, Mark 8, 34. When he called the people to himself with his disciples, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now today, love is being misdirected from loving God and others toward loving self. Now I want you to hang with me for a minute because you're going to think, well, Pastor Phil, he's just going to hammer us on self-love. and No, no, just wait. This is going to be balanced. I'm going to bring it around, show you the other side of the coin in just a moment. We died to sin. This is the first thing you need to understand. We died to sin. This death is legal. Write that down. We're talking about the legal death that we have experienced. When he says, take up his cross... It deals with the penalty of our sin. Jesus died our death and he set us free. There's no way to understand this better than this phrase, take up his cross, because anyone in the first century that saw a man carrying the postebellum or carrying the cross, when he saw that, a man carrying a cross like Jesus did, he knew that that person was doomed to what? Die. But did God ask us to be dying sacrifices or living sacrifices? living sacrifices. So we'd already died with Christ. Paul said it clearly in Galatians. He says that I died with Christ. Nevertheless, 
I live, but the life I live now, I live in the strength by faith of the Son of God. This is so important. We died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We rose to walk in newness of life with Christ. We celebrated and announced this in the waters of baptism. You see, we are dead to sin. That's what this is right up here. When we baptize somebody right up here, that person is saying, I have, I'm identifying with the one who died for me and I died with him. I died in him. I died to sin. My sins have been covered. It's a legal thing. I'm no longer guilty. He took my sin debt. And he paid it. I'm justified. Then we are to die to self. We died. We already died to sin, but we are to die to self. This death is moral. Let him deny himself. What does that mean? We're to mortify. That's an old English word. Crucify. Put to death. The old man with all of his desires. We're to put off the old man like a garment. I preached on this not long ago. Put on the character of Christ. We must do it. He did it when we died to sin. We do it when we die to sin. Let me say that again. He did it when we died to sin. We do it when we die to self. It's not a one-time done, one, one and done deal in your life. That's why Paul got up and he said, I die how often? Daily. We're to put off the old man like a garment. The inner inclinations and desires belong to the old nature. They're still there, but they are not to rule. I could read Romans 6. By the way, we don't live moral lives by trying to tackle one temptation at a time, but by dying to self and renewing our mind on the sacrifice of Christ. It's not just, boy, I'm a drunk and I got to work on drunkenness and I'm just going to attack this drunkenness and I'm going to fight this drunkenness. You're going to lose until you realize I'm a new person in Christ Jesus. I have been born again. The person that did that's dead. I'm a new person (laughs) and I'm no longer obligated. We're to die to safety. Die to safety. Dying, denying self means denying the idea of your own desires, disowning ourselves because we've been bought with a price. We renounce our rights to go our own way. To deny yourself means to turn away from the idolatry of self. Oh, we don't even know what idol worshipers we are when we look inside for all of our decisions and desires and we let self rule. We're just idol worshipers, idol worshiping ourselves. We're to die to safety. This death is physical. We're to die to safety. This is the words he used and follow me. Folks, we're not called to a life of safety. We're not called to a life of avoiding all risk. You know, most Christians do that. They go out of their way. Well, I'm not going to say anything, do anything, or know anything, because as sure as I say something, do something, and know something, people are going to pick on me. They're going to marginalize me, and they're not going to, they're just, they're going to keep me out of the conversation. I won't get invited to all the meetings. I won't get a raise. And in the neighborhood, they'll make fun of me. And so I'm just going to play safe. You play safe, and people die and go to hell. We're not called to safety. In the first century, when this was written that we're reading right now, to that group, the Romans, who were in charge, to be a Christian was to be godless. What? To be a Christian was to be godless. Why? Why would they say that? Well, because none of the Christians would worship any of the visible gods, the little gods, the the demigods, the gods of the people. They wouldn't worship any of the gods, and they said that they were worshiping an invisible god, therefore they're atheists. And then they were considered by the Romans to be cannibals. Huh, these, these people are terrible. They eat the body and drink the blood of their God. 
These people practiced incest. Oh, these Christians are so terrible. Because they're all brothers and sisters and they're intermarrying with each other. That was the concept. These were the criticisms. And in that world, they didn't seek to practice safety. They, they sought to obey the great commandment and the great commission. Because of that, the, the blood of Jesus saved many, many people in the Roman Empire and all of its hate faded. Third, God enables us now to affirm ourselves. Now we're going to go to the other side of the coin. It creates some attention, doesn't it, to think that. What the verse that I'm reading says, deny myself, and now I'm saying God wants us to affirm myself. Well, how can this be? Well, I want you to think about Jesus for a moment and the way that he looked at people. He looked at humanity. How did he look at humanity and people? Well, uh, first of all, think what Jesus taught about people. What did he teach about people? Well, although evil and ugly things proceed out of the heart of man, Mark 7, 21 to 23, Jesus highly valued human beings. He valued humanity. He said this, he said, you are of much more value than the birds of the air, and you are of much more value than the beasts of the field, speaking specifically of sheep. We of, we of all creation are the ones that bear his image, and we are the ones that are to have the dominion over the rest. So that's considering what Jesus taught about people. Now, let's look at Jesus' attitude toward people, toward the lost, toward the world. What was his attitude? Well, I'm not going to cite any verses, but this is so obvious in the scripture. Let me just say it to you. Uh, he received children, which was, a, that was anathema in those days. He received children, lepers, women, cripples, Samaritans, and Gentiles. He let a prostitute touch him and wash his feet. He ministered to the poor and the hungry. And the very first group he ever showed himself to on planet earth were those anathematized and hated shepherds because they were so filthy. That's who Jesus was dealt with. His attitude toward people was, I receive all people. <laughs> Everyone can come to Jesus. We must remember his mission and death for people. He didn't come demanding service and special treatment. Mark ten forty five. for even the son of man did not come to be served. This is the same passage where James and John says, we'd like a throne on either side. In the same passage, he said, the son of man did did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for me, for many. So folks, here's what we need to understand. According to Jesus, my self-worth is not determined by what might be found in me. The value that Jesus puts on me is what determines my self-worth. And he died for me. Amen. So Pastor Phil, how do we deal with this dilemma? How do we deal with this? Am I to value myself and deny myself at the same time? Am I completely holy evil or am I completely holy good now that I'm a believer? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. What we are by God's creation, we must affirm. Let me say that again. What we are by God's creation, we must affirm. I'm going all the way back to the book of Genesis in the beginning. God made man and he made woman and he made them good. I'm not saying everybody's good because we know we're tainted by sin. I'm just saying what, what we are by God's creation, we must affirm. That includes everything about us. That means we must confirm our sexuality. Male and female are the only choices. We must confirm and affirm our race, our ethnicity, our family, our gifts, our abilities, our physical aspects, and our limits. We must accept and affirm them.
God made you who you are, like you are, where you are. Your paradigm was by divine design. Do you understand that? You're everything, I mean, the fact that I'm bald-headed. God wanted it that way. I'm going to talk to him about it, but I'm, he wanted it that way. I mean, where I was born, who I was born in, that I can't get rid of this southern accent. That's the way it is. God made me who I am, the way I am, with the voice I have. God made me who I am. He made me a man. He, he made me a male. Why do I want to fight with that? Any voice that speaks to me that tells me I'm something other than what's obvious is lying to us, and it's the devil. What we are by God's creation, we must affirm. We must accept the sense of moral obligation to others. We must accept the stewardship of our person. I am responsible for myself. I'm responsible for the choices I make. I'm responsible for the relationships of my life. I'm responsible for the way I talk to you and the way that I interact with other people. I am responsible. I am a steward of myself. I, I am not free to throw myself on society and say, oh, but please take care of me, help me. I just can't. I, I'm, not, I'm not free to do that. I have to be responsible for myself. We're responsible for ourselves, for our surroundings and our realities. Yes, we have been created by God and we're tainted by the fall. But just remember this, God sent Jesus to redeem humanity, not to destroy it. What we are by the fall, we must deny. Ah, what we are by creation, we must affirm. What we are by the fall, we must deny. We must repudiate. Moral perversity, blurring of sexual distinctives, lack of sexual control. Now, folks, this goes beyond the, 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 what's happening at the moment. But we don't have any freedom. freedom uh, we don't have any freedom on this planet to go outside the bonds of marriage, even if heterosexual. Do you understand that? It's just as despicable in the eyes of God. Lack of sexual control, giving in to inner impulses, selfishness, proud, expressive individualism. We've got to stop making a God of ourselves. We must stop worshiping at the altar of self. So we have to deny ourselves. What else must we do? We must, what is offered in Christ, we must accept. Now, I've said so far we're created and we're fallen and we're sinners But that's not the end of the story. Here's the whole story. We're created, we're fallen, and we're redeemed. How many of you are glad you're saved today? Say amen. Amen. Well, then don't apologize for it. Don't think that God's done a short work in your life or he's failed you. He's saved you and he's enabled you by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God and by the word of God to be who you are, who he made you to be, and to live according to his word. Yes, he has. He's redeemed you. We've been purchased with a, with a price. There's an old song, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb. We've been purchased. We've got a lot to affirm. We have been made new creations in Christ. These wonderful words, regeneration, reconciliation, redemption, they essentially indicate a recreation because everyone in Christ Jesus is a new creation. Are you here and you're saved out of, and I'm not even going to mention, you're saved out of whatever, you fill in the blank, you're saved out of that. Well, you're not going to beat it by fighting the, fighting the habits. You're going to beat it because you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All have become new. Ephesians 4.24. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3.10. We've put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We have much to affirm. We have more to deny. 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ compels, controls us. Because we judge thus that if, any, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and rose again. There are a lot of things I could list, including irrational sexual inclinations and all self-focused thinking. But I just want you to just stop and turn the corner in your thinking and think about this, about the way that God looks at you and the way that Jesus looks at you. The, one of the shortest parables in all the Bible is this one. In Matthew thirteen forty four. the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. You see... The field is the world, and Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world that he might buy you. I want to tell you who you are. You are God's treasure. You are the reason for redemption. You are the reason that he paid the price and bought the whole field. It's like I want a new house in Ankeny. And I pick the one I want and I buy every house in Ankeny to make sure I get the one I want. Jesus wanted you. And he paid for the sins of the whole world for you. Pastor, you're yelling. Oh, I can't yell it loud enough. If I could stand on top of the mountain and shout it to the top of my voice, I would. I went to the fair. I love to go to the fair. I am not a jewelry sort of a person. I know some of you folks love your jewelry. You got things hanging and dangling and poking and, you know, I know. I know. I know. I'm just not a jewelry sort of a person. But I found something I had to have. There's a little, there's a little woman. The reason I found it is because I know the woman's always there. She's from Huaraz in Peru, from the Huayaga Valley. And, and I always like to go in and speak Spanish to her and say hello to her. And while I was in there, I got to looking around on her table and she had this jewelry. And she had this little ring. And here's what it says. It says, it's got a cross. He died for me. I live for him. He died for me. I, and it spins. And I can take this little ring, and when I'm thinking wrong, <laughs> and the devil's sitting here saying, you're not getting treated right. And I, I mean, when I'm thinking wrong, and I'm getting selfish, and self starts just rising up, you know what I can do? I don't have to have this ring, but it, I found it to be very helpful. I go, oh yeah, he died for me. I can live for him in this situation. How many of you believe he died for you? And he's enabled you to live for him. And you don't have to serve self. You just don't. Because every one of us has gone our own way. 
that servant's self. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He paid it all so that we don't have to pay anything but allegiance and love and service. He died for me. I live for him. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. It's crazy out there. It's a strange new world. But for the Christian, it's what it's always been. (laughs) Created, fallen, but redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He died for you. Live for him. Don't live for self. Father, I pray that you'd add your blessing to the preaching of your word. And I pray as we close this chapter on expressive individualism today and the rest of the month, I pray that you would help us understand that all of these answers are at the foot of the cross and in the person of Jesus and on the pages of the book that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.